You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. As any gaming widow, roommate who can't get a turn with a TV, or parent who's sure their child is going to develop rickets can attest, online gaming can be a tad addictive. Some people accept their fate. Some tackle the problem head-on and accidentally unplug the TV. One father in China, identified only as Mr. Feng, had a different approach. He put a hit out on his son. On his son's online character, that is. Unhappy that his 23-year-old son was not looking for a job, Mr. Feng decided to hire experienced players in his son's favorite online games to hunt him down and kill him over and over again. His hope was that his son would lose interest if he was horribly outmatched and died every time he logged on. It didn't work and the son even got one of the mercenary players to fess up as to why they were targeting him, but Mr. Feng still gets full genius credit for the plan. This first example will probably be the last example of behavior our listener can get behind. At least I hope. We're not here to cast dispersions on video games and the people that play them, but every subset of people has a small percentage that take things too far. Today we look at the behavior of video game enthusiasts who ruin it for everyone else. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. One of the best-known MMORPG, or massively multiplayer online role-playing games, is World of Warcraft, so much so that its name is widely genericized to mean any game in that genre. While it's usually written as, wow, I'm going to use the verbal shorthand of Warcraft for clarity. For the uninitiated, Warcraft allows players to create characters and move around an expansive medievalish world, complete with magic and monsters, battling and working cooperatively with other players for about $15 a month. According to the developer Blizzard, Warcraft has had over 100 million accounts created since its inception in November 2004, which is approximately the populations of Germany, Belgium, and Sweden combined. Players can be found in 244 countries or territories around the world, even in the research stations of Antarctica. Over 500 million characters have been created, which is one character for every person in the U.S., with 184 million to spare. When you have that many people involved in an activity, you're sure to have some malcontents with nothing better to do than cause trouble. In 2006, a guild, or a group of players who formed together for a common goal or activity, calling themselves Serenity Now, found a particularly memorable way to entertain themselves in-game. They crashed a funeral. After a player died suddenly of a stroke, the people they played with online decided to gather together in a virtual memorial service for her. The players didn't bother equipping their characters with much in the way of weapons and armor, since they wouldn't be out questing. This proved to be a mistake, 
since the funeral was being held in a player versus player server, meaning players can attack and kill one another. The ironically named Serenity Now had discovered the event after it had been posted in the game's official forums. When the other players gathered their avatars in a field by a shimmering lake, Serenity Now charged down on them like armored cavalry. In the span of about three minutes, they cut down most of the virtual mourners. While their actions were worthy of scorn for breaking a pretty universal taboo, Serenity Now hadn't actually violated any Blizzard rules. The guild is still active, which is probably why players are more careful about where they hold gatherings. Some people seek out ways to cause trouble. Others recognize the opportunity to cause trouble when they see it. The following year, a new villain was introduced, who attacked with a spell called Corrupted Blood, which would instantaneously do massive damage to a player, enough to wipe out a low-level character, and could pass from player to player if the characters stood too close to each other. The spell, intended to last only seconds and function only in one area, soon spread across the virtual world when an oversight in the code allowed players' pet characters to take it out of its intended confines. This would have been hard enough to deal with without some players deliberately picking up the bug and taking it to the most populated areas. Gameplay was substantially altered as players had to be more concerned with avoiding infection than with slaying beasts and completing missions. Despite programmed quarantine zones and players completely abandoning some densely populated cities, the pandemic and its effects lasted until a combination of software patches and resets of the virtual world finally controlled the spread. On the bright side, real-world epidemiologists studied how corrupted blood spread for an insight on human reactions to an epidemic. Pets in Warcraft, which can either aid characters in battle or be purely for show, were a root cause of another player-exacerbated disaster. The Fire Elemental boss Lord Geddon cast a living bomb spell, which turned players, or the pets they had summoned, into massive 10-second grenades. That 10-second timer would be paused, but not cancelled, if that pet was dismissed, essentially sent off-screen, but still belonging to the player. This allowed players to smuggle these living bombs into civilian areas where attacks wouldn't normally be possible, and kill a room full of people simply by calling their pet. The bomb hit for massive damage, amplified by any damage-increasing gear worn by the victims. A popular target was the auction house, packed with unsuspecting victims buying and trying out the most expensive and powerful gear the game had to offer. I would love to have used a clip from the Warcraft episode of South Park, where Blizzard has to send one of the main character's dads into the game with a legendary sword after a player's gotten so strong he kills everyone else just for fun. It's easily one of the top five South Park episodes. But Comedy Central has lawyers, and I'm just going to assume I can't use that clip. The OG of MMOs is Ultima Online, which launched in 1994 as home PCs made leaps forward in technology and affordability and constantly connected high-speed internet began in earnest to replace dial-up. Quick aside, who remembers desperately trying to cover up the computer with your hands to muffle the modem noise so your parents wouldn't know you were online? The first offline Ultima game came out in 1981 and was essentially a digitized Dungeons & Dragons, which had launched seven years prior. 
The developer's goal was not only to replicate the magic and monsters, but to recreate the social experience of getting together on the weekends to campaign. They spent the better part of three years coding a feature that players destroyed almost immediately. Ultima Online had a virtual ecology to rival anything in the natural world. Plants would grow in the game based on the terrain. These plants would draw in deer and rabbits, which would multiply until they were in equilibrium with their food source. Computer carnivores would spawn in more remote areas and travel to where the herbivores were. They too ate and bred into equilibrium. What this means is if they ate all of the herbivores, there wouldn't be enough food for the next generation to eat, and their population would begin to die back until the herbivore population replenished. The game was so detailed that the grass the herbivores stopped to eat would be shorter after they walked away. The system ran on its own so developers could focus on other parts of the game. In-house testing had gone swimmingly. They assumed players wouldn't kill too many of the herbivores because the rewards were comparatively low and that they would target the carnivores instead. At the very hour the game went live, players moved across the landscape like locusts. They killed the fictional fauna faster than the servers could respawn them. The developers spent the next few months trying to come up with a solution that would counter the gamers' innate propensity to kill things for the sheer joy of killing them. Making the herbivores worth even less didn't work. Making them respawn faster didn't work. In the end, the only solution was to take the virtual ecology code out of the game. Perhaps the most tragic part of this is that the average gamer never even knew this highly detailed program was there. The game's second life, launched in 2003, is an online world in which residents create avatars and interact with other residents, places, or objects. More than just a fancy chat room, residents can contribute to the world around them, creating buildings and even animations. Its influence reaches into the real world, such as with its virtual economy that's tied to actual money. The world is so immersive that recording artists have held album release listening parties in the game, and even live performances thanks to Second Life's audio streaming capabilities. One user who developed a following for his music in the game actually got a real-life record deal out of it. User-generated content is one of the factors that makes Second Life such a unique online environment, and also explains why Second Life is for adults only. Developer Linden Lab places few restrictions on residents, meaning you can see some pretty raunchy stuff while you're exploring the environment. One of the most well-known figures in the virtual world was Anse Chung. She was an actual millionaire from her success in in-game real estate. This led website CNET.com to organize an interview with her in the game, which was heavily advertised in-game and on the internet and was open to spectators. Not a good idea, as you probably already guessed. A group of players calling themselves Room 101 launched a grief spawn attack, which allowed them to reproduce the same image or symbol ad nauseum. The image they chose? Big, wriggly, pink penises. In a matter of minutes, the virtual studio was filled with them. After trying valiantly to ignore it, Chung and the CNET reporter tried changing venues, but the trolls followed them and kept at it, eventually crashing the server. I'd like to thank one of my favorite YouTube channels, This Exists, for the information about the music industry in Second Life. Sam doesn't post as frequently as he used to, 
but the old videos are absolutely binge-worthy. So head on over to youtube.com slash thisexists when you get the chance. Another popular fantasy-based MMORPG is RuneScape. With over 250 million accounts created, multiple spin-off games, and a series of books. It's three years older than Warcraft and still going strong. Players have invested over 7 billion hours in gameplay. Every minute in the game, enough weapons are crafted to equip 10 Roman legions. If it were a country, it would be more populous than three United Kingdoms. A 2009 update led to the discovery that it was possible to purposefully crash another player's client, meaning it would force the user from the game, but leave the character there for others to kill and rob. The glitch reared its head if players used the Greek character Mew in the game's public chat feature. The program was unable to render the sort of upside-down lowercase h and would instead cause a fatal error. Malicious players could turn off their text box so the issue wouldn't affect them before going into crowded areas and sending a public message to everyone nearby. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes. So you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The Falador Massacre is the name given to an event in 2006 when the first player ever to reach level 99 in construction held a party to celebrate his new achievement. It led to a bug that allowed certain people to kill anyone regardless of whether they were in a safe zone, an area where the program is supposed to disallow combat and damage. Too many characters were at the party, and the struggling online server started booting players out, battle ready, unleashing them on the rest of the world. All the other players they encountered in the safe zones, not so much. Once players learned that they could kill other players who couldn't fight back, they slaughtered almost everyone they came across. Many years of uptime for RuneScape means a fair number of bugs along the way. A 2009 glitch allowed selected players to walk through walls and barriers, 
Another caused the game to record damage from one knife as if it were many knives at once. And one allowed players to get back all of their health points, even if they were poisoned, by drinking tea. That is a fitting error from a British developer. Abuse of glitches is a direct breach of the bug abuse rule under the honor section of the rules of RuneScape. The punishment for guilty parties varies depending on the particular glitch and the degree to which it was abused. Minor graphical glitches generally go unpunished, while major abuse, such as what occurred in the pink party hat duplication, may result in a permanent ban. Now there's a phrase that warrants further investigation. The pink party hat duplication glitch. Role-playing games have their version of pretty much everything you find in the real world, including currency and economy. Characters complete quests, hunt, mine, and do other things to earn money to buy in-game items. Such as in the real world, the more rare the item is, the more it costs to buy and sell. The rarest and therefore most expensive item in RuneScape at one point was a party hat. A pink party hat, no less. The glitch came up when trading items with another character. If you entered certain numbers in a field during the trade, new items would appear. One person discovered this glitch accidentally, told a handful of friends, and within a few days, it was being exploited by hundreds of people. Many of them focused on the pink party hat, the same way most of us would make gold or paper money appear out of thin air if we could. The market was flooded with these items, and their relative price plummeted. The developer, Jagex, scrambled but struggled to find out how players were creating these items. They went so far as to offer free lifetime play to the person who told them. Users took the offer, including one of the first people to exploit and spread the glitch, who was given a lifetime ban instead. It's said that the in-game economy is still recovering. Moving to a more futuristic setting, we have the MMO called Planetside a free-to-play first-person shooter from Daybreak Game Company released in 2003. When one player died in real life, his friends also held an in-game memorial. But they knew about the Warcraft funeral massacre and they weren't going to go down like punks. They erected what was essentially a force field around the funeral. This worked perfectly at keeping players from other guilds from crashing. Their oversight lay in not realizing they had a fair number of jerks in their own community. A guild supposedly on the same side jumped on the opportunity to carpet bomb the funeral to pieces. The only players who were armed were a small group of snipers who were there to do a 21-gun salute. They were ill-prepared to take on an aerial attack. Over 200 characters were killed in under three minutes. These players at least got some comeuppance. The next time players in that guild tried to log on to the game, they found that their guild had been permanently banned. The punishment was not quite as harsh for an EVE Online player, not nearly as harsh as he arguably deserved. EVE Online sees players operating in fleets and corporations in the sci-fi future across 7800 star systems. It was even exhibited in the Museum of Modern Art with a video including the historical events and accomplishments of the player base. A player whose username was The Wiz was on the whole minding his own business in the game when he found himself inexplicably targeted by a group of players called the Goon Fleet, at the behest of one, the Mitanni. Everything The Wiz built, the Goon Fleet destroyed, over and over again. 
At wit's end, the Wiz sent the Mitney a heartfelt email, explaining that since his wife had left him, Eve Online was his only source of joy. This was a mistake. Not only would the Mitney mock him for it, the Mitney made it part of a slideshow at an Eve fan convention, encouraging other players to attack the Wiz to see if they could potentially drive him to suicide. For the act of stunning douchebaggery, the Mitney was banned for Eve Online for one month. One month. For attempting to incite thousands of people to drive a stranger to suicide. One minor silver lining. The player at the Wiz was not aware of this public humiliation until well after the fact. Game developers can be creative in dispensing punishments, as creative as they were in making the games. Overwatch is a popular competitive action game, and as such, gameplay can get heated. Text chat isn't available on consoles like Xbox and PlayStation, but it is an option for PC players. Developer Blizzard received several complaints on their forums regarding the phrase GG Easy, which is snarky shorthand for good game, easy win. Rather than make it as easy as four keystrokes to insult less experienced players, Blizzard implemented new filters on the Overwatch servers, which automatically changed the message. Typing GGEC would then result in messages like, I'm wrestling with some insecurity issues in my life, but thank you all for playing with me, and gee whiz, that was fun, good playing. Those who try to troll others end up looking ridiculous. The MMORPG Black Desert Online allows killing other characters, but the karma system will punish you, such as making the city guards pursue you more aggressively. A troll called Kimochi wouldn't let the negative karma stop him as he kept killing and harassing other players, and spamming the general chat with death to our peers, which is to say death to role players. Lead game master Rotaz opted not to simply ban Kimochi. Instead, he messaged Kimochi, listing his offenses. If Kimochi didn't want to be banned, he had 24 hours to write a 501-word essay. The topic? he would have to write a backstory for his character, a female ranger, on the Black Desert online forums. Rather than risk calling Rotaz's bluff, Kimochi wrote the backstory essay, effectively becoming what he was trolling, a role player. In 2003, Fable was in development at Lionhead Studios. Players assumed the role of an orphan boy who realizes his dream of becoming a hero. The choices players make in the game affect the perception and reaction to their hero by the non-player characters, and change the hero's appearance to mirror what good or evil deeds he has done. A small group of hackers, known as Kibitz, managed to gain access to Lionhead Studios' servers. The group stole screenshots and upcoming game information, and then proceeded to threaten and taunt the team at Lionhead. What Kibitz didn't know was that they were easily traceable through their IP address. The Kibitz member who was threatening Lionhead Studios was 16 years old. Instead of going to the police or looking to pursue him legally, Lionhead's community director hacked him back. He found a poem the teen had written, along with a photo of a landmark near his house, as proof that they knew his identity. Lionhead Studio gave the teenager a choice, fable-style either stop his wicked ways, or the developer would call his parents. The teen was quiet after that. 
Trolls should step carefully in ArenaNet's Guild Wars 2, another sword and sorcery MMO. After one player decided to make a habitual nuisance of himself, and other players were losing faith that he would ever be punished, the developer decided to ban him, but with a certain flair, as reparation to his many victims. They screen-captured video as they took control of his character, walked him to the town square, had him stripped to his shorts, which is the most naked a Guild Wars character can get, climbed to a high place, waved to the crowd, and jumped to his death. The video then shows the moderator deleting all of the characters and banning the player's account. Sometimes the gamers themselves dole out justice. Ark Survival Evolved is a survival game set in a land of dinosaurs where you can, and have to, make everything you need to survive, like shelter, tools, and weapons. What one player creates, another can destroy. Most players accept trolls as part of the ecosystem of gaming, but one troll in particular, screen name Ricky, was going too far and bothering several users. Frustrated by his actions, a player calling himself Barbaric Seagull, and that is an awesome screen name, and other users put together a plan. They used their resources to construct a jail cell and trapped Ricky in it. Unable to escape by conventional means, he tried punching the wall to lower his health in hopes of respawning outside the cell. The other users would tranquilize him before his health got too low, heal him, and keep an eye on him. This punishment lasted for over 10 hours before Ricky was set free. To quote Barbaric Seagull, this is what happens when you're a jerk. Justice is served. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I'll leave you with one more example that some people call trolling, and I call knowing your opponents. The most important rule in the frenetic, cel-shaded, run-and-gun game Team Fortress 2 is don't stop moving. You're pretty much dead if your character stands still. One in-game feature is spraying, which is essentially graffiti, but players can upload images rather than trying to draw something with a pixelated spray can. It didn't take long before players began spraying walls with cheeky cheesecake pinups and hot anime girls. Given the number of teenage boys playing the game, it wouldn't take long before a player stopped to look at the girly picture you put up and you could move in for the kill. Focus, gentlemen, and try to play nice. Today's episode was called We Can't Have Nice Things Gamer Edition. If you'd like to see We Can't Have Nice Things become a recurring subject, pop over to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts. It's also a great place to see little factoids in between episodes, suggest topics for upcoming shows, or to ask questions about what you just listened to. Facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. 
on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.